book of Revelation. I just want to read the first three verses. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all the things that he saw. Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein. For the time is at hand. There is, uh, many of you have seen, the British Broadcasting Company's series um, called Downton Abbey, or you've heard of it. There is a, in the middle of this extended, really it's a story of this family from the early 20th century, there is a, an oblique, oh, it's so quick, reference to an Irish lady, um, like lords and ladies, not just a woman, but a lady. Her name was Powers Court. I imagine that even if you memorized this, you wouldn't know what I'm talking about. It is that subtle and it you just flies by. Powers Court. Lady Powers Court was a dispensationalist. And she opened her home to dispensationalists to come and have conferences back in the 19th century. I want you to think about this for a moment. Those big, stately, huge mansion-like houses. People from all over Europe, England, Ireland would gather together, even from America, and every summer would spend a couple of weeks and talk about eschatology, the study of the end times. And out of that came probably something that shouldn't have, which is a bunch of time charts of what's going to happen in the future. We read through our New Testament, and I don't know about you, but I, when I was, some of you, if you went to Bible college, you probably had this experience. They have a class where you go through Revelation, and they give you these time charts. You get all sorts of these. If you Google them, you can find uh, future events uh, time chart. You put that in Google, look at images, you'll get a hundred of them, I'm sure. But if you remember, there's a line on a page. Any of you seen these? You don't even have to go to Bible college. They did these in churches uh, a long time ago. It was really popular. You had a line on a page, and then you had um, you had uh, creation maybe way over. It'd be over here. Creation, and then you had um, over a little while, you had a line, and it was uh, the flood, right? And then a little, a little more time went by, and then you had... Um, uh, Jesus coming, and there was an arrow down, Jesus coming to earth, and then you had uh, the cross was like underneath, and then you over a bit, and Jesus, an arrow going up, Jesus ascending to heaven, and then you have this kind of maybe, sometimes it was an, a swoopy arch that uh, would be underneath church age. Do, do you know what I'm talking about, or am I just wasting my time here? Um, I'm, I'm thinking, if I'm describing something you don't know what I'm talking about, it maybe I needed a picture. I thought you knew what I was referring to. So you have this swoopy arch, and it says church age, and then, and then it, has, um, it has an up arrow. And what's the up arrow? 
That's the rapture of the church. And then, uh, and then you have after that, uh, what occurs? Tribulation. Tribulation period. And they was divided into two halves. And you'd have the midpoint. And you have the two little guys in the middle there, right? The prophets. And, and, and by the way, that's not even completely accurate because the tribulation doesn't begin after the rapture. If you believe in a rapture as I do, the tribulation begins sometime after the rapture, but not immediately. And then you have, but then you have the return of Jesus, right? You have the, another down arrow, and the down arrow is the return of Jesus. And and uh, and then you had what after the return of Jesus? Millennial, millennial kingdom that lasts a thousand years. And at the very end of the millennial kingdom, then you have a, a kind of a rebellion, and 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 there was a lot of little lines all through those areas talking about different events happening especially during that tribulation period, they had the bowl judgments and the vile judgments and vile, V-I-A-L, not vile, V-I-L-E. They're not the, they are evil, but they're not, that's not what it means by vile. And you got these judgments in there, right? And, and I think, in a sense, or there is at least a sense, with the diminishing influence of dispensationalism, the influence of Revelation as a book is also diminishing among God's people. Dispensationalism is a theological term. It refers to a system that teaches the overall theme of the Bible is the glory of God, that Israel and the church are two separate things in Scripture, and that the Bible should be interpreted literally, say normally, and then grammatically looking at the words, looking at the grammar, how words interact with each other, and then historically, or I would say the context in which those words are written. But this approach to the Bible is becoming less popular. Even though we're only about 25 years after the writing of Left the Left Behind series, series, which was wildly popular in Christianity, at least American Christianity, many Christians are drifting away from the literal reading of Revelation to some other method. As I said, dispensationalism is on the decline. And, and different versions of a new theology, or no, no, it's an old theological system, but it's more popular today. Reformed theology are taking its place as the popular approach to Scripture. For example, the Gospel Coalition and Together for the Gospel are organizations that are friendly with, but I think ultimately opposed to dispensationalism and adopt some form of Reformed theology. And maybe together for the gospel would say I'm being too harsh on them, but I think that really is true. Now, Reformed theology, and let me tell you what it means and what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean the Reformation. They'll claim that it does, but that's not what it means. And when you think Reformation, you're thinking Martin Luther, John Calvin, Oldrich Zwingli, which is a great name, ladies. If you're ever going to have a child, a male, Oldrich would be a great First name, I think. Oldrich Zwingli. And, and, and then you had um, Menno Simons. Uh, Menno Simons' followers are the Menno Knights, right? And the Amish. And you have Menno Simons. And actually, probably along those, all the theologies, I, 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 I personally identify closest to Menno Simons, <coughs> at least in a lot of ways, of what he actually believed. But that's the Reformation. That's not Reformed theology. And, and I think... Um, if you go to places on the internet and you type in Reformed theology, you'll get the idea of the Reformation being the basis of Reformed theology. I got questions.org, which is why I never let any of my Bible students use gotquestions.org 
as a source. It's a terrible source. Reformed theology is also not Reformed soteriology. And when I use the word soteriology, don't get stumped by a big word. It just means the doctrine of salvation. And when I say Reformed soteriology or the Reformed doctrine of salvation, that's essentially Calvinism. It's what are called the doctrines of grace. And some people refer to it as tulip. You may have heard that. Total depravity, unconditional election, uh, limited atonement, um, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. And actually, if all of those meant what I think they should mean, the word should mean, then I would be agreement with that. But they all actually don't mean what I think they should mean. The more you study, they mean something else. So I'm really not into that. But that's not even Reformed theology. Reformed theology approaches the Bible by centralizing the unconditional Old Testament covenants and even forming a couple of new ones. And, and I would argue that Reformed theology came out after the Reformation, came out of the Dutch reformers, particularly two men who kind of codified Reformed theology, and they, are, they have great names again, Johann Cochius, uh, or Cochesis, uh, and some people say Coxius, so it's hard to know exactly, and, and Hermann Witsius. They both lived in the 17th century and were Dutch theologians. And they kind of centered all of theology around two ideas, the covenant of works, that's God interacting with Adam, right? God says to Adam, I'm going to put this tree. You can't eat the tree. If you eat the tree, what happens to you? If you eat the tree of that, the fruit of that tree, what's going to happen? You're going to die. That's the covenant of works. And because Adam did indeed eat the fruit of the tree, he then instituted the covenant of grace. And so you have the covenant of works of covenant of grace. The Westminster Confession, which is a reformed theological document, states that in the Old Testament, quote, it was administered by promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, for signing Christ to come, end quote. That's, that's the covenant of grace in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, quote, the ordinances in which this covenant is dispensed are the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And they would argue baptism is not the baptism we're thinking of. It would be infant baptism. Reformed theology generally teaches that the overall theme of the Bible, then, is the redemption of man. It sees that the church has basically replaced Israel and that we interpret through Scripture through spiritual interpretation. And I'll give you a good example of this. There's a guy named Peter Masters. Do you know who Peter Masters is? Peter Masters is the pastor today of Charles Spurgeon's church in London, the one he pastored. It's been around that long. It would be wonderfully great if our church lasts that long. In fact, by the time Charles Spurgeon was pastoring, I think it was already 200 years old or something. It had been around a long time. The tabernacle. You go into London, you go to this church, and it's an evangelical church. They preach a lot of truth there, but they are, are decidedly not dispensational. In fact, Peter Masters in his book, uh, Not Like Any Other Book, that's the name of the, the title of the book, Not Like Any Other Book, says that people who interpret the Bible like I do, are heretics and are preaching a false gospel. There you go. So I can't wait. Someday I'm going to go to London and introduce myself as the heretic who preaches a false gospel to this man. I can't wait to do this. But I bring all this up because how you approach the study of the book of Revelation is going to depend on how you interpret the Bible. You, you can't interpret Revelation differently than you interpret Genesis. 
And, and if you turn that around like a mathematical formula, you can't interpret Genesis differently than you interpret the book of Revelation. You have to use the same method in both places. And I'm going to tell you, I am vociferous on this point. Isn't that a good word? I am absolutely unswayed. I cannot be moved off the mark. I believe this. You have to interpret them the same. And so, while I agree with the dispensational approach, I say literalism means normal interpretation. I, I interpret scripture like I would interpret any book. That doesn't make me a pagan, as masters would say. A story is a story. A poem is a poem. A law is a law. I don't think that's pagan to believe that. I also look at the way the words work together, what they mean, how they form sentences, what those sentences are doing in paragraphs and how those paragraphs create arguments. And finally, I think the context is really important to understanding the meaning of what is actually in those arguments. And because of that, my approach to Revelation is a futurist approach. Now let me give you some ways that people come to this book. Some of them are preterists. Do you like that word preterist? It's not very difficult. The word preter in uh, Latin means past. And preterism approaches revelation in terms of events having already taken place in John's own day. So John's writing at the end of the first century, right? He's got his little scroll there. He's, right, he's left-handed, I'm sure. So he's writing, because that would be good. And he's writing it out. And, uh, and as he's writing out his, his book, right? He's writing something that's about to take place. It'll all take place within just years of him writing it. That's preterism. So when you're reading Revelation, you're reading something that occurred a long time ago. All of that's there has already happened. In fact, happened thousands of years ago. That's preterism. The historical approach sees Revelation in terms of church history. Mainly, this was the view in the Middle Ages, so maybe a thousand years ago this was very popular, and these people see Revelation as history from Christ to about 1,000 A.D. So as they're looking at Revelation, they're saying, okay, 1 through 3 happened right when John was writing, and we've actually believed that. And then they say chapters 4 through 22, that happened up through about 1,000 A.D., you know, and I'm really being general here. Uh, and, then, and then they were really looking for a millennial kingdom to come. We, we would be then living at the tail end of the millennial kingdom, which... which in one sense, would make sense because we are living in a time of a great rebellion against God. But it's not the millennial kingdom. Then there was the idealistic approach that looks at all of Revelation as a giant symbol. Everything's symbolic. Okay, and I had a Sunday school teacher when I was in high school, and his name was Ken. I don't remember his last name. And he was a really nice guy, but he didn't know the Bible at all. He, bless his heart. I mean, he, he did his best. And I want to tell you that the, the creatures coming out of the bottomless pit were actually helicopters, okay? And, and the helicopters came out, and they, they fired missiles. That's the sting of the scorpion. Uh, I, don't, I guess the part about people not dying but wishing for death, the missiles weren't very effective, I suppose. I don't know. He had, he had this, everything was a symbol, okay? That's the idealistic approach to Revelation. And, but I think the real best approach is the futuristic approach, particularly after chapter 3. So starting in chapter 4 through verse 22, I think what we have are events, people and events that are mainly 
in the future. Sometimes it goes back and refers to things that happened in the past. As we've looked in chapter 12, that happens. But mainly what you have is a futurist approach. And that's really the majority position among evangelical scholars, though that's beginning to lose ground. There are some people writing today who reject the futurist approach. They, they're taking, they're either coming up with brand new approaches, which is, you know, if you want to do scholarship in any field, you, you want to come up with something new. But so they're coming up with new approaches or they are rejecting the futurist approach for one of the others. Um, uh, D.A. Carson, for example, says in one of his books that uh, he thinks all the approaches have some validity to them. Uh, so that's nice. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to really say any are really bad. I'll just take them all. And I won't really tell you where it's good and where it's bad. Uh, so if you try to pin me down, I can say, well, that's not where I thought. I was thinking here. I don't like that. So what do you do when you read the book of Revelation? How should you read it? And let me give you three ideas. Number one, recognize that Revelation is a prophecy of Jesus. You could even say a prophecy about Jesus, but a prophecy from Jesus regarding future events. And you look in verse one, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants. Now, the first word of Revelation is apocalypsis. It's apocalypse. It has the idea of a revelation. And you'll notice who the subject is. It's the revelation of Jesus. Now, of there can mean by. This is the revelation by Jesus. He's the speaker. Or it can mean the revelation about Jesus. He's the subject. Or it can be a revelation that be belongs to Jesus. It's possessive. But I, th I think really here, primarily, the, the best way to look at it is this is a mystery about Jesus, which Jesus himself is revealing. He's the revealer. And, and it's regards to the future. They're about, look, look at the last part of verse 1. What does it say? About what? He's going to show unto his servants the things which must shortly come to pass. Now, you say shortly. Well, that's preterism. If shortly comes to pass, well, that surely had to be within 50 or 60 years of its writing. Well, the problem is, is that expression can, can mean 100 years, 1,000 years. It's, it's not easily defined and pinned down as one specific marker of time. And so I think you read that sentence, you could say it's within John's lifetime, it could mean 100 years, or it could just mean it's at some point in time in the future, it will happen. What I think is the best way to look at it is not when it will occur, but the certainty that it will occur. And I think that's what John is actually saying. These are the things which will come to pass. They will happen. And I think when you're looking at Revelation and you're beginning to read it, the very first thing you need to do is focus your mind to say, this is something. Here are things that will happen, particularly after chapter 4. I say that because chapters 1 through 3, particularly 2 and 3, are revelation to or messages to churches that were in existence at the time and are no longer in existence. And I don't think there's any reason to take them as symbolic of churches today necessarily. Here's what Paige Patterson wrote. The prologue to the apocalypse, the book of Revelation, though brief, is nonetheless laden with information critical 
for both its initial recipients and modern interpreters. That's us. It's critical for us. Three groups crucial to the book are described. The author, the intermediaries, and the auditors, people who are receiving the book. The human author discounts his ownership of the book's contents. It's not John's revelation. It's God's revelation through Jesus. The human author discounts his ownership of the book's contents and claims the message originates with God who first gave it to Jesus, a revelation unveiling events which at the moment of its disclosure were predominantly yet future. And I'm telling you, that's the majority of you. So, so I'm going to read Revelation, and if I'm going to read it effectively, I think the best way to read it is to read 1 through 3 as the things which are, and you look at verse 19, chapter 1, that's giving you your outline, the things which are, and chapter 4 through 22, the things which will come. The things which have yet to be. That's future. So you're reading Revelation chapters 4 through 22. I think you're predominantly reading something that is yet to occur. Are you all with me? Whether you agree with me or not, I just want to make sure we're with that. Okay. In order to study Revelation effectively, it's not only important to recognize this being about future people and events, chapter 4 through 22, but it's also important that we are confident that what has been written is true. So this is the second idea. Be confident that John's eyewitness testimony is accurate. It's true. Now, Revelation is at least third-hand information. How do you guys do with third-hand information? Or fourth-hand information? How do you do with that? Right? Your child runs in. Johnny down the street told me that his mother said that her child or her cousin, and you, you start going, what now? You draw on the picture here, and you find out that somewhere in another state, somebody broke his arm, right? And then, and then when you go to talk to the lady, you find out, no, that wasn't it at all. Johnny got some parts wrong. And how do you do a second, third hand, fourth hand information? It's not very good. Um, every time I even get second hand information, I tend to think maybe, maybe I need to talk to the person who was involved, especially if it doesn't ring right. If, if it rings in my head, that's not how she normally is. That's not how that person normally is. I, I've never heard him say that. I've never heard her say that. Then, then I'm going to almost discount that information until I talk to that person because there's always nuance, right? There's always nuance to something being said. And while children have trouble understanding nuance, they don't even, some of them are thinking, I don't even know what pastor means by nuance. What's that word mean? Um, you know, the, the little bits of meaning on the ends of words that really color the words so you really get an idea of what's being said. I think sometimes you talk to that person, second, third hand, fourth hand information, you find out, well, it's not quite like what I, I heard. But here you have it. Look at verse one again. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave to him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent, and I think the he there is likely Jesus. He sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. Father to son, son to angel, 
Angel to John, John to us. Okay? You ever play the game telephone? I whisper something in somebody's ear. They whisper it in the next year, next year, next year, next year. You get to the end of the line. It's completely different. They've come up with a new game, right? It has something with drawing a picture. And you're talking, trying to figure out what's drawn. And then you whisper that to somebody else. And it, it's, just, it's just a mess. Especially if you don't know how to draw. It's a mess. So if it's fourth-hand information, at least it's third-hand information. But if it's fourth-hand information, is it true? In, in, in your world, if you got fourth-hand information, would you say true or untrue? Fourth-hand information, true or untrue, especially if it's fantastic information. It's really spectacular. Would you say true or untrue? You might be likely to say it's untrue. Why am I saying true? Well, look who the speakers are. Right? God the Father to God the Son. God the Son to his messenger. An angel is a messenger. And the messenger to John, who under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, holy men of God, spake as they were being borne along by the Holy Ghost, wrote this to us. Now, from me to you, there may be a breakdown of meaning, of understanding, but up from God to us, I think there's no breakdown at all. So I think we can conclude that John's testimony is surely true. So you look at verse 2. John bare record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all the things that he saw. This is the word of God. He heard God's words. He could actually record them. He, he could record the testimony of Jesus. He even says, I'm witness to those things. And so you realize that when you read Revelation, you're reading something that is true. How, how neat then. I'm, I'm, looking, I'm looking at a book that's, that's revealing Jesus to me. It's revealing Jesus about himself, about his church, about future events of which he is sovereign, over which he is sovereign, and they are true things. I can trust them. So where does that lead us then? To the last idea. If the future events primarily are true, then finally, can we notice the blessing for those who trust it? Do you see it? Look at verse 3. Blessed is he. There's a blessing that comes. And the blessing is sure. This word blessing has the idea of something being fortunate or really well off. This, this is the way we describe people who win the lottery, um, people who marry well, people who get a good job and, and do well in life. We say, well, he's fortunate. Or modern vernacular, we would say he's lucky, right? But a believer would say he's blessed because we know that all good things, particularly to believers, come from the father of lights, with whom is no variableness nor shadow of turning, James says in chapter 1. All good gifts come from him. So whether I'm Job or David in terms of life, or I'm one of other God's servants like Abraham or Isaac, who, who were extremely well off financially, whether you're one or the other, the fact is all good things come from God's hands. And so we would use the word blessing. We are blessed. And there's a promise attached, a blessing. In fact, in, in the book of Revelation, there are seven of them. 
in chapter 1 and verse 3, but later chapter 14, I'm just going to rattle these off so you know there are seven. Chapter 14, verse 13, 16, verse 15, 19, verse 9, 20, verse 6, 22, verse 7, and 22, verse 14. Blessing, 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 blessing. There's blessing in the book. And, and the timing here, do you see it? The blessing is a promise that is near at hand. It's, it's right nearby. It's on the other side of the door. And while we look at time, and the younger you are, the longer time drags, right? I mean, the pastor is still preaching. Oh my, please make it stop. I know. I know how that is. But the reality is, from the time John wrote it to now, is relatively nothing in God's eyes. A thousand years is like a day. It's been a couple of days. And so, from that sense, there's a blessing, a promise of it, trusting in God's words, then, that brings that blessing. That blessing has some complementary ideas. How do I obtain it? By trusting in God's words. I read Revelation and I trust that what's here is true. Even though it came to me from here to here and to here to here and to here to here to me, I can actually say I know these are true things. Blessed is he that readeth. They that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things that are written therein. And I, and I love the word reading here because the reading is not just referring to reading, but it's reading out loud. So in the early church, did they have their daily devotions? They, they open up their version app and read the Bible. Did they do that in the early church? No. To own a Bible, a Bible, would have been almost impossible in the first century. In fact, it's not until the early second century that we get the sense that there is an e there is, there is a New Testament to be had. But for someone to have all 27 books. And then to say you had all of the 39 books of the Old Testament, is it's impossible. Nobody had that. A church wouldn't own that. In fact, if you fast forward from the first century, 1,400 years later, very few people would own a copy of the Bible. In fact, you know what the Catholics, one of the biggest mistakes they ever made in their entire history is when Martin Luther graduated with his doctorate degree, which he, he, his entire studies were on the writings, the letters. It was the letters of, it'll come to me later. It's just some guy who wrote these, he wrote these sentences, Lombard sentences. That was, that sounds like something your doctorate in, doesn't it? He read, he, may, Lombard may not be right. It was the sentences of somebody. You can see how important this is. Well, he got his doctorate, they gave him a Bible. Oops, because then he read it. And he went, this, this Catholicism thing isn't right. We've got to make some changes. Nobody had a Bible. It isn't until Gutenberg and then later mass printing that people have Bibles. It isn't even until the early 20th century that people are marking their Bibles and somebody walks by and says, you know, I had a 
create a study Bible. You know, those study Bibles that you have access to, nobody had those 150 years ago. Nobody. Nobody. So when you think about this, it means reading them aloud. You're sitting in church, and one of the things they would do in the early church is they would get up and they would read a long section of Scripture because that'd be the only time a person would hear the Bible. Now, I know we're all busy. I know that. And I know even if you're retired, you're busy because we fill our days with busyness. But shouldn't we be reading the words of God, especially because we have access to them? Woe on us that we don't. Reading them. And then I love the second idea, that they that hear the words of this prophecy, hearing the words. That's a, a, a very important New Testament term, to hear. He that it ears to hear, let him hear. What is the idea of hearing? It's, it's not the auditory reception of words. You know, you have inside your ear these little things that receive information, right? Vibrations. And they hit your cochlea. Am I right? It's the cochlea. Hey, I'm, I'm looking at my PA back here, the cochlea. It's fluid filled, looks like a snail. Is that right? Hey, <laughs> woohoo. I was awake that one day in biology class. Well, you got these vibrations that come and your ear picks all that. It's amazing how God created the ear, right? That, that's not what it's referring to. It's referring to here, it's the idea of receiving things as being of divine authority. Hearing them as the very words of God. So, so I'm at home tomorrow and I open my Bible and let's say I open to Revelation and I begin reading. I say, these are the words of God. These are God's words. That makes it really important. And then finally, and they keep the things written therein. This is the idea of obeying. Right, mom, you say to your son, go clean your room. You say to your daughter, clean up the kitchen, whatever, however you do. I just, I just create all sorts of gender issues right there, didn't I? Um, you say to your son, go clean the kitchen. You say to your daughter, take out the trash. I don't, I don't care how you do it, right? You, you give that command, okay? You want the child to do it, right? <laughs> I mean, that's kind of your hope. I've been telling people recently, been talking about our children going to bed at night. When they were old enough to do this, it was a glorious evening. I, I don't remember the exact moment, but I almost do when we were able to say to them, go to bed. Just go to bed. Because before that, what do you have to do as a parent? You, you got to get toothbrush, toothpaste, open your mouth, you know, spit, head down, okay, here, here's water, okay, almost choking, spit, okay, you know, and washcloth, I mean, you're doing this, right? And it, it is, it's hard if you're doing it night after night after night, especially when they're 15. I mean, it's, no. No, but that time comes when they're, when they're younger, and you say go to bed, and Becky would be so upset because she would say go to bed by 8, and they would be in bed by 8.05. And she would be, I said 8 o'clock. And I'm going, I'm so thankful they're in bed by 8 o'clock. I'm going to give them that five minutes. I don't care about the five minutes because 
I'm at peace. I'm downstairs. I'm reading my book. I said, go to bed. They got up and left the room. And if they were in bed at 8 or 8.05, it doesn't matter to me because they're in bed and I didn't have to do anything to bother with them. She says, well, it, didn't, it wasn't obedience because I said 8. And I'm going, well, then just don't put a time on it. There's no law. These are the discussions we have at home. But the point was the doing it. You must do it. The words that are here are for you to keep. Not to discard, but to keep. And that's why I started with all those charts, because I think this is a problem with dispensationalism. It ended up coming up with all these charts and saying, that's what Revelation is about. And while I think it is about future events, the point was never about the charts. Those are cool. But everybody knows what those charts are really for. It's to try to accomplish something we're not supposed to attempt to predict when things are going to happen. We're not supposed to do that. Jesus says, the angels in heaven don't know. My Father only. So why do we try to figure that out? And so I conclude with the right approach. My One of my professors in graduate school, Bob Leitner, who may still be living, he's very old now. Dr. Leitner said of the Bible, here's what he said. The Bible is the revelation of God. It's the words of God, God revealing himself. So it's God's revealing and man's listening. God reveals himself, man must listen. The inspiration of the Bible is God's controlling and man's recording. The canonicity of the Bible was God's preserving and man's recognizing. The illumination of the Bible is God's clarifying and man's understanding. The interpretation of the Bible is God's enabling and man's declaring. But the authority of the Bible, it's God's enforcing. It's man's obedience. And there it is. And that's what it's for. Go read your Bible. Read it all the way through. Enjoy the stories of Adam and Noah. And, and just try to think of what life must have been like with David and King Saul. And talk about Elisha and Elijah with your children. And enjoy the horrors, if you can enjoy them, of Israel in the time of the exile but the triumphs of Daniel and the, his three friends as they walk through a fiery furnace together. And then marvel as Jesus is born, as the church is established, as, as Jesus dies on a cross and rises from the dead and promises to return and, and, just, and just walk with Peter and Paul and James and John and walk through the Bible with these men and read to the very end, and then do it. Let's pray.